All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to summer. Welcome to summer. Uh, let us begin with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, as your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, ascended into the heavens, so may we also ascend in heart and mind and continually dwell there with him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Verse of the week from the Congregation of Prayers from John chapter 17, verse 17. I figured I'd make it easy for you. It's easy to remember and it's really short. Let's speak this together. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Okay, first of all, sanctify. What does it mean to be sanctified? Yes, to be made holy. Sanctus, like what we sing during the divine service. Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. Holy, holy, holy. So, sanct, when you see that, you know that it has something to do with being holy. So, sanctify is to be made holy or to be set apart for sacred use, which you all are. Which leads me to my next question. Who is them? Sanctify them. Yeah, well, all people. All of you. Jesus prays for you. This is part of his, the long high priestly prayer that Jesus prays in John 16 and 17. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. Sanctify you. He is praying for you. By your truth. Now this is uh, really great here. Because this is sort of like the catechism. Catechism has all, it's got the, what does this mean? Well, this means. But then inside the explanation, there's all sorts of little questions that are answered. As the midweek students from my class know well. Um, or ought to by now. But anyway, uh, so here's the question. Sanctify them by your truth. What is your truth. Your word is truth. It's a question that answers itself. It gives you further explanation. So uh, now we're going to break this part down. The word of God. What is the word of God? That uh, Yes. Let's do it this way though. What if we make this a capital W instead of a lowercase? Now what is it? Christ. Yes! It's Christ. Your word is truth. Christ is truth. You are sanctified in the person of Christ. He is the truth of the Father. You are sanctified by Christ's name. Where do you receive Christ's name? In baptism, you receive the name of Christ. You are sanctified in the body and the blood of Christ, which you receive in the Holy Eucharist. And you are sanctified in the Word of Christ, which is sort of funny because it's the Word of the Word, preaching. The word of Christ sanctifies. The word of Christ is brought to you by the power of the Spirit. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Christ is truth. And in him you are sanctified. Now, uh, let's speak this again. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Alright, and uh, so when we are looking at the catechism here... We, for this summer, we're going to be going through the table of duties. Uh, they're sort of abbreviated a little bit here. I don't have room to include all of them, and we don't have time to go through all of them. So, this is the first of the table of duties, what hearers owe their pastor. Uh, 
1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct, let's speak together, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Okay, even with this first verse, you see how this is connected to the verse of the week. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Christ is the word. He is the truth. You're sanctified by Christ. But the question remains, how do you get Christ? The office of the ministry exists to give you Jesus. My only job on this entire planet, through the entire time that I live here, is to do nothing but to give you Jesus. And that's the bottom line. Here it is, preaching and teaching. And there's one more job that's sort of the hallmark of what the pastor does. Preaching, teaching, and... Uh, that would fall under teaching. <laughs> Rebuking. I, actually, I think that falls under both preaching and teaching. Depends on what you've done. I'll have to talk to you after. Uh, preaching, teaching, and administering the sacraments. I give you the words of Jesus, I give you the name of Jesus, I give you the body and blood of Jesus. I give you all the Jesus that I can possibly give you. I give you all the Jesus that Jesus has to give you. Okay? Uh, now, the basic gist of what this says is uh, the prophet who preaches the word should live by the word. So, pastor should get a salary. You should take care of your pastor. That's what this is. Now, next, 1 Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Okay, respect those who are over you. But they're not over you. I'm not better than you, and I'm not your tyrant or your dictator. I'm not over you as a ruler. I am over you in the Lord. Which means it's not the man, it is the office. The office of the ministry. The office of pastor. You respect the office. Uh, the man, I don't know, who could care less. <laughs> okay? Um, and here it is, who admonish you. That's also like rebuking Marla. So there you go. Okay? Hold them in the highest regard in love, not because they are a man who you like, not because they say things that you like, not because they do things that you like, but because of their work, because of the office that they hold. And I love this. Live in peace with each other. Get along. <laughs> the end. And then there's one more from Hebrews 13 on the, on the second page. Look at that, it spills over. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, you get this language of being over you and uh, submitting to the authority of the ministry. And that is uh, intentional language. The, much like the father in his house is the spiritual head of the house, within the church, the pastor has been ordained into an office that is the spiritual head. Which is why, if you listen carefully in my sermons, I call you dear children. Because, according to my office, you are all my children. It doesn't matter how old you are and how young I am, or vice versa. You are my children, each and every one of you. Which is why it's also okay to call your pastor father. Because that's what he is in the congregation, is your spiritual father. Uh, the basic question of this uh, passage in the Table of Duties is, if your pastor hates your guts because you don't do anything but make his life miserable, how does that help you in any way? And I will give you this caveat. Even if your pastor hates your guts, which he doesn't, this is all hypothetical. <laughs> even if your pastor hates your guts, your pastor is still going to be your pastor. But your pastor is not going to enjoy doing it. 
and your pastor's maybe not going to go to as great lengths as he would because your pastor is also a sinful, fallible man. So, <laughs> the question again, if your pastor hates you, of what advantage is that to you? Answer, it is of no advantage to you. So, obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. Work with your pastor because if your pastor hates you, and if you hate your pastor, then you have, what do you have? There's no advantage. Uh, questions here. This is pretty basic. We're just running through this quickly. Questions. Okay. You may depart, children, to your Sunday school. And we will stay here for hours. There's two handouts in the back. We're using this little brown table here now because with bulletins and handouts on the table outside and with treats, things get a little crowded. And also, I don't want to have treats on the handouts or handouts on the treats. So, ne'er the two shall meet now. So, uh, just be prepared. Bulletins and handouts are all on this table. There's also Bibles on this table too, if you need them. We found a whole bunch of Bibles that we didn't even know we had. So, of course, we share our glut with you. Uh, so if you didn't bring a Bible and you want to use one, they're on the table. So here's the thing. Uh, you know we're in the middle of this talk on the Trinity, which is great and it's really important. And we're going to get back to it. Don't you think that we're leaving it? Because there is a whole lot left for us to talk about. However, we're doing something new for the summer months starting today. This is the first Sunday of our summer period. And if you look at the congregation at prayer, oh yeah, I have two things to say about that, by the way. The hymn of the week is not the hymn of the week anymore, it is the hymn of the month. So we will have one hymn that is going to be our hymn for the whole month, and we're going to learn some new hymns together. However, I did accidentally write the wrong number. Uh, it's not 694, it is 604, so I didn't reach far enough up to hit the, hit the number. So anyway, uh, we're going to learn some new hymns. And the goal is that the first Sunday of every month is going to be the day when we look at the hymn for the first time. And the Bible study will be about the hymn. We're going to talk about the text of the hymn, the history of the hymn, why it is. And then I'm going to teach you the tune. And we're going to all sing it. I even have my pitch pipe so we can be in the right key. Uh, <laughs> And then every week after that, we'll sing a couple stanzas of that hymn as part of our opening, just so that we get the tune and the text into our heads. It's going to be so much fun, Marla. You don't even know. <laughs> okay? Um, and here's, here's part of the plan with this. I'm not picking hymns willy-nilly. There is method to my madness. This hymn that we're looking at today and for this month, 604, I bind unto myself today. This is uh, St. Patrick's hymn, and it is a Trinity hymn. So, see, we're not actually straying that far. Uh, but this is a Trinity hymn, which means that we sing it on Trinity Sunday, which is this month. So we learn the hymn here, and then we're ready to sing it in church when it comes up as the hymn of the day. <laughs> so it's, look at all of this planning. Uh, okay, so I have, a, I have the, uh, the music printed out from the actual hymnal here, and you can follow along with the text here, or you can follow along with the text on the handout, because I also have it all listed here. This just has my little commentary with it. You're free to do as you wish, but you will need the words in one form or another when we begin to sing. Uh, so, as I said, and as you can tell by the little icon here, this is the hymn of St. Patrick. Whether or not St. Patrick wrote it, uh, 
We don't actually know. It's been ascribed to St. Patrick, and the church has said Patrick wrote it, so we good Christians say, all right, well, Mother Church has said that this is how it is, so we say, okay, uh, faith agrees. A little bit of a history for you before we get into the text itself. St. Patrick uh, was a missionary to Ireland. He was a Roman Briton, Roman citizen in the British territory of Rome. And when he was 16 years old, he was kidnapped by pirates, Irish pirates. And of course, the Irish were filthy heathen pagans. And it's okay for me to say that because my wife is Irish and I'm Scottish. So we're all from the same blood. Uh, and they were. they were. They were scary heathens. In fact, the Romans built the wall to keep them out because they went a little north into the Gaelic territories and saw these enormous people who painted themselves blue, who didn't wear armor when they ran into battle, who were not afraid of dying, who were primitive and yet destroyed the Roman armies. And they said, never mind, the world ends here at the wall. We don't want anything to do with those people. <laughs> so uh, Patrick it was abducted. He was uh, stolen away by these Irish pirates and sold into slavery in the mainland of Ireland. And he was there for approximately six years. His father was a deacon, I believe, in the church, a presbyter. So he grew up in the faith. Uh, in slavery for six years, he sought to escape. And he finally had an opportunity to do it. And he fled the country, ran all the way to the coast, and convinced a uh, ship driver to let him on his ship that was going back to England to Britain, excuse me, and he uh, went home. And when he got home, he started studying the scriptures more. Uh, and after one or two years, and this is in his own words, by the way, he wrote a, a book called The Confession, uh, The Confession of St. Patrick, and he talks about his history and his biography. <clears throat> so he says that he had a vision and he had a vision of the land of Ireland, and he heard a voice calling that said, Patrick, we need your words. Where are you, Patrick? We require you. So he decided, well, I'm going to go back to the place where I was a slave, and I'm going to preach the gospel to those people. And he did, and they became Christians. St. Patrick is, if you look at the icon, one of his most well-known things is the clover. And in his, you see that on, under his feet, he's, he has, there are snakes everywhere because the story goes that he drove the snakes out of Ireland. So there he is trampling over the snakes. Uh, and in his right hand, he's holding, uh, first of all, look at his hand. This should look familiar to you because this is the same sign that I make to you. And he's holding in his hand a clover, three-leaf clover. And uh, the reason for that is because he explained the Trinity to the Irish pagans using the, four or using the three leaves of the clover by saying, how many leaves are on this plant? And they say, three. And he says, but how many plants are there? And they say, well, there's just one plant. And he says, so too is the Godhead three in one. Now, of course, as with all explanations of the Trinity, that's actually a heresy. Uh, but it's a, good, it's a good illustration for people who don't know anything about the Trinity, so it worked. Uh, the heresy, of course, is that you don't, they're not three separate leaves in the Godhead. They're all one. So if you really want to draw the Godhead using circles, it looks like this. One, two, three. And you look at it and you say, well, that's only one circle. And I say, no, it's three circles. It's one circle. That is three circles. Uh, and that's, you can't really explain it that way by showing people a circle and going, see, there's three, but there's only one. That, now do you understand? <laughs> so uh, this is, again, why I reiterate the fact that any time that a divine mystery, any time that someone seeks to explain a divine mystery, it always ends poorly. 
Because by definition, a mystery is something that cannot be grasped, defined, or understood rationally. But anyway, that's a little bit about St. Patrick. Now, this is his hymn. This is the really famous hymn uh, called the, the, the tune, or excuse me, the text is often called the breastplate of St. Patrick or the lorica of St. Patrick. The reason for that is because it was a, a prayer originally that would be uh, like a prayer of protection. So you would, you would pray this prayer in times of spiritual distress or in times when you felt like the devil was really hammering after you. You would sit and pray and the prayer was designed to focus you not on yourself and not on your own trials but upon Christ and uh, the power of Christ that is in you and the victory of Christ that is in you. Uh, so it's called the breastplate for that reason because it's, the, it's protection for you. Uh, now, let's look at this text a little bit. This, the first stanza here. I bind unto myself this day the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three in one, not on, <laughs> and one in three. Sorry, I guess I didn't proofread this. Three in one and one in three. There you go. That's the first stanza, pretty short. They get longer. But uh, a couple things to notice here. First, scripturally speaking, Let's take a look at Numbers chapter 6, the end of Numbers chapter 6. And while you're looking that up, I'm going to talk a little bit about this. This language of binding, almost every single stanza of this hymn has the sense of binding. Uh, I'm binding unto myself. And what does that mean? To bind. Sure, in, yeah, okay, joining together, becoming one. In a theological sense, that's very good. That's a great answer. Because theologically speaking, that's exactly what this means. The physical illustration of binding emphasizes the act of taking something and tying it up, in this case, binding unto myself, I am affixing to myself this thing. And I'm doing it so tightly, not because I think it's going to get away from me, but that I might get away from it. Like binding your boat to the dock. You don't do it because you think the dock is going to float away. You do it because you think the boat is going to float away. You must bind it to that so that it won't move. I must bind myself to the name of the Trinity so that I do not fall away from that name. Because I know, according to the promises of God, that that name is not going to fall away from me. And I have that name. I've been given that name. That name has been stamped upon me and branded into my flesh. I'm not getting rid of that name but I can leave it behind. Uh, so I'm binding myself to it because I want to keep it with me and I want to keep myself straight. And also, because the name doesn't exist for the sake of the name. It doesn't is exist for the sake of itself. It always uh, works for another. In this case, it works for you. What does the name give you? Think of the Lord's Prayer, the explanation in the small catechism. Our Father who art in heaven. What does this mean? We should with all boldness and confidence ask our dear Father as his dear children. Ask your dear Father as his dear children. You have a privilege with the name of the Trinity. According to the name of the Trinity, to call upon the Trinity, to approach as a dear child, because you are not, but in the blood of Christ you are. You are made to be that which you are not, and you now bind it to yourself so that you don't leave it behind. You also have power. In this holy name, you have power. You have the power to tell Satan to go to hell. Because that is according to your name. You don't speak according to yourself. You speak according to the name that you have. Because if you have the name, then who do you belong to? You belong to Christ. 
And who is going to steal you away from Christ when he is the one that possesses you? Who's going to enter into his fold and see his sheep branded with his mark and steal them away? No one. They know his voice. So let's look at Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Please. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless that people of Israel, the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Okay, now this should sound pretty familiar to you. If it doesn't sound familiar to you, I'm worried about you. <laughs> because this is perhaps one of the most consistent things that you hear from me. I say this all the time, even outside of the divine service. When I go to visit the Shadans, I always will leave them with this benediction. The name of God is put upon them. Even the Lord says, put my name on the people. When my name is on the people, I will bless them. You have the name. Into whose name are you baptized? Yeah, Jesus' name, which is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the name of the Trinity. You're baptized into the name of God himself. That's a stamp. That's a brand. I like brand better than stamp because you can wash a stamp off, but you can't wash a brand off. The brand is always going to be there. And that's what it, that's what it was. Sacramentum, the sign in the Roman army, you would brand the symbol of your... Uh, regiment as a soldier so that on the battlefield people could see you and go hey okay this guy's one of mine I'm not gonna kill him but those guys don't have brands I'm gonna kill them that was your identifying mark this is your identifying mark you have the blessing of the Lord because you have his name so bind yourself to it that's true as well if you deserve it they knew exactly where you came from <laughs> <laughs> you get, you, there's no escape from the mark of Christ. That's why, by the way, we don't baptize willy-nilly. Just because we believe that infants should be baptized doesn't mean that I'm going to set up a booth with a bowl of water outside on Market Square Day and say, hey, everybody, bring your kids over and we'll just baptize them all. And we don't do that because baptism is a big deal. To be branded like that is a big deal and we're not going to take it lightly. We want everyone to have it, but we want everyone to have it rightly. Um, because to be baptized and then to, be, to live outside of the church, to be branded and to abandon your regiment uh, is going to be worse for you than never having been branded at all. So we take it seriously. Uh, but bind yourself to this name. Now, um, the second stanza, I bind this day to me forever by power of faith, Christ's incarnation. His baptism in the Jordan River, his cross of death for my salvation, his bursting from the spiced tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of doom, I bind unto myself this day. This is your benefit. You, buy, you are bound to the incarnation as well, again, by nature of your baptism into the name of Christ. So, remember this. There is a... There's an exchange that takes place. Why must Christ be baptized? He has no sin. If baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, why does he go in to be baptized? John the baptizer asks him the same question. What are you doing, man? I need to be baptized by you. This is, you've got it all wrong, Jesus. I know you're this Messiah guy, but come on. I mean, study your scriptures, man. You don't need baptism. You don't need it. And Jesus says, yes, I do. Dei in the Greek. One word. It is necessary. It is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Here's what that means. How is Jesus going to fulfill all righteousness if he doesn't have all sins to deliver? If he doesn't have all sins, he cannot fulfill all righteousness. So his baptism is different than yours. When you go into the waters, it is, as St. Paul writes, a washing of renewal and rebirth in the Holy Spirit. It is a washing. It is a cleansing. It is a rebirth. 
for Christ. Uh, so picture it this way. When you go into the water, think about the day uh, when you work outside all day and you come home and you finally step into the shower and you look down and you see that nasty, dark, gray water that hits the drain. And you see that sludge coming off your body and dripping down and that pool of water down there is so gross. <laughs> but you don't care that it's so gross because you're getting clean and you feel good that you're getting clean. That's your baptism. But here's where it gets fun. In your baptism, that nasty, dirty water doesn't go down the drain. It's recycled. You go into the waters of baptism to, cleanse, to be cleansed. Christ goes into the water of baptism like a sponge who soaks up all the impurity in the water so that you have clean water to wash in. You go in to make your garments white. He goes in to make his garments black. So his baptism is necessary because that's the point at which he takes all of the sins of the world onto himself. The waters of the Jordan continue to flow even into our baptismal font here. It's eternal. The baptism of Christ is eternal. As long as there are baptisms taking place in this world, the water that washes off the foreheads or the backs of the people who are baptized goes down into the Jordan and is put upon Christ. That's the baptism of Christ. So, by power of faith, you cling. I love that too. Because, of course, we Lutherans are all about faith, right? Yeah, faith. By faith, we're going to cling to Christ, not because I have the power to do it. I'm going to bind myself to Christ, not because I have the will to do it, but because I have the faith in Jesus that Jesus gave me. Even here, it's not even about you. It's all about Christ. It's all about what he does. It's just a reminder so that you don't get a big head. Uh, so, by power of faith, Christ incarnation. Uh, so Christ incarnation is the umbrella term. And then all of these other things take place because of Christ's incarnation, which is then what you're joined to. His baptism, his cross of death for your salvation, that's his crucifixion. His bursting from the spiced tomb. I love that. That's a great translation. Uh, bursting from the spiced tomb. His resurrection. I love the violent language of bursting. It's not like he gets up and you know, folds the napkin and knocks on the door. And, hey. You know, <laughs> when Jesus rises from the dead, the doors of heaven are burst open and he runs out of the tomb. Just, it's violent, bursting from the spiced tomb as he bursts out of the mouth of death and breaks the doors of hell. His riding up the heavenly way, his ascension, that's today, the ascension of our Lord, his coming at the day of doom, Christ will return to judge both the living and the dead. I bind unto myself this day all of this, all of the victory of Christ I put uh, onto myself. Uh, now, the Lutheran service book omits some stanzas. And because of time, I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to look at the omitted stanzas. Uh, and I decided that I don't. <laughs> but there are a couple others that it omits which we are going to look at because those are really good. So, uh, three, I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. Now, what does faith do. This is one of my soapboxes. What does faith do? You do. You have peace through your faith, but that's not what your faith does. 
Faith, see, here's the thing. Faith is not static. You don't get to say, oh, I have faith. And then just leave it at that. Because that doesn't mean anything. Faith can't be this static thing that does nothing, that says nothing, that lives nothing. It has to be always in motion. Okay, sure, yes. It not only gives you the desire, but it gives you the little spur in the side to keep doing it. But there's a one word answer that I'm looking for. Uh, yes, in a way. Most importantly of all, faith protection. Pardon me? Yes, it does. Most importantly of all, though, faith agrees. Faith agrees. And the longer way of saying that is faith says amen to what God says. Now, in that, of course, you do have peace and you have comfort. You do have protection because you're in and under Christ. You do have the desire to live your life aright, as the hymn writer says. You do have the desire to will to do better, uh, often in the liturgies of confession and absolution. Part of what the sinner says is, I want to do better. If you didn't have faith, you wouldn't really care, and you wouldn't want to do better. But faith does that. But the reason why faith does all of this is because faith says amen to Jesus. Because Jesus says, you're living a new way now. And faith says, amen, yes, I have to live, it. I have to live the new way. Jesus says, you are reborn. You don't get to be born of your mother and then do nothing. When you are alive as a living, breathing human being, you can't just slump around. There are things that you have to do. You have to live your life. So too is it with faith. When you are reborn in the spirit, you are born unto the way and you live your life. It's not a static thing. It's always in motion. Faith agrees when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Amen. Yes, they are. So all of this is to say that this stanza is about faith. Faith that agrees with what God says. Faith that submits to God. Uh, and that's the thing about faith. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have your faith and your own will because they are uh, always opposed. What faith wants, i.e. what the new man wants, is always different than what the old man wants. Do you want to do good or do you want to do evil? Really, if we're all going to be honest here, you all know you want to do evil. <laughs> There's a great cartoon uh, and it, it's a conversation between uh, a boy and his mother. And he's telling her, oh, I just, I'm so conflicted. I don't know what to do about this problem. And the mother says, oh, well, just follow your heart. Your heart will tell you what to do. And then he says, okay, heart, well, what's it going to be? And the last frame is this demon heart, and all it says is sin. <laughs> And it's so great because it's true. When you say, well, now listen, what do I really want to do? Let's forget about God for a second. What is it that I want to do? That's your demon heart that's a sin. Yeah, do it, do it. And you have to say, whoa there. Maybe listening to my own heart wasn't such a good idea. Maybe living the life of faith, living as the regenerate, which is what the Christian is, Christian is the regenerate, means we have to live a different way. Maybe it means that we submit to the will of God instead of asserting our own wills over and above all of creation. Maybe it means that we submit to a law that is greater than ourselves. That's what this is about, the power of God to hold and lead. God's going to hold and lead you. You don't hold and lead God. You're always in the passive. You're always the one being acted upon. 
His eye to watch, His might to stay. Who's going to defend you? Are you going to defend yourself? His mighty arm is there. It is laid bare for you, protecting you. His ear to hearken to my need. The wisdom of God to teach. And if one is going to teach, what must the student do? Listen. Listen. Does the student assert his will over the teacher? Well, yes. <laughs> right, let me rephrase that. Ought the student to assert his will over the teacher? No. The student ought to submit to the teacher because the teacher is going to teach and the student is passively going to be taught and to receive that which the teacher gives. His hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech. You don't even get to decide what words you say. The word of God gives you words. His heavenly host to be my guard. You, there are such things as guardian angels. You do have angels that watch over you. In Luther's morning and evening prayers, uh, part of the prayer is, Let thy holy angel be with me, that the wicked foe may have no power over me. That's the last thing you say. The wicked foe may have no power over me. Amen. And that's the end of the prayer. Let thy holy angel be with me to guard and to protect. Psalm 91. He will send his angels uh, concerning you lest you strike your foot against a stone. Uh, you have God looking out for you, protecting you, leading you, guiding you, teaching you, doing all these things. And faith says, Amen. That's the only, really, in regards to God, the only thing that faith ever does actively is to say, Amen. That's, my, that's your action, is to say, Amen, God, yes. Rhonda. So the deal about all the sacred guardian angels? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. I've never read anything to convince me otherwise. In fact, even the Lutheran fathers talk about that. They talk about uh, guardian angels. They talk about guardian angels and sin, too. Living in sin pushes away your guardian angel. And the deeper you get and the more you reject your baptism, the less your guardian angel can do because you've driven them further and further away. And the more you open yourself up to the wily assaults of the devil. So can you, can you see your guardian angel once in a while? I don't know. The reason I'm asking Mm -hmm. Could be. I'm not going to tell anybody that they're wrong if they say that they've seen an angel. Yeah. Um, you never know when you will entertain angels unaware. And look at Abraham. The three visitors come. They're not ordinary visitors. There is the son and there are his angels with him. And his angels move on and go to Sodom and Gomorrah to help Lot. But uh, you know, those people uh, in the cities were unaware of whom they were entertaining. Uh, so you never know. And um, but, uh, the reality too though is that uh, sometimes you see the devils coming after you as well. When my great-grandmother, she was very ill, uh, and this was not even right before she died. This was a couple years ago. She had a, a scare where we thought she was going to die. And she, they had to sedate her because she was uh, so upset. She said, I, there are demons in this room with me, and they're trying to take away my faith. And... Uh, Many times you have your medical professionals. This is the problem with our world nowadays. We're so science and medicine oriented where everything has a diagnosis. Uh, it's easier to live your life if you understand that some things cannot be diagnosed. Uh, and that there is a spiritual component to health. So many medical professionals will say, oh, no, 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 we'll just give them some medicine. 
But for the person of faith, when somebody close to you says there was an angel and you didn't see anything, the worst, or that there was a devil and you didn't see anything, the worst thing that you can do is to say, oh no, there wasn't. <laughs> uh, listen, folks. The bottom line is this. Faith extends beyond your ability to see with your dumb fleshly eyes. Because the eyes of faith see better than these eyes. And judging by the percentage of folks in this room that are wearing spectacles, uh, I don't know that I'd trust your eyes that well anyway. I know I wouldn't trust mine. Uh, okay, so it doesn't matter. Again, I'm not going to be the person that says, oh, you say you saw something. Well, no, you didn't. Uh, let me assert my power as pastor and say, no, you really didn't see anything. I'm never going to say that. And I'm never going to be the one to deny it. I, it's, a, it's certainly plausible. And Well, good. Good. I, if I were in that position and I saw or thought I saw an angel, I probably would have peace as well. <laughs> I'm, there's no complaints there. You're not going to hear any arguments from me. Uh, okay. Now, uh, uh, we're going to look at stanza four. And then a couple... No. Don't apologize. Never apologize for asking questions in Bible class. Um, we're going to look at this fourth stanza. We're going to look at a couple ones that aren't in the hymnal. The fifth stanza is basically this. It's the entire, the first half of it is the first stanza. And then there's an addition that is uh, a doxology. So it's got the little triangle in the hymnal and you stand to sing it. That's it. Okay, uh, so we covered that. There you can read my notes if you really are curious. Ch uh, stanza four. Against the demon snares of sin. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere good. The vice that gives temptation force. The natural lusts that war within. The hostile men that mar my course. Or few or many, far or nigh, in every place and in all hours, against their fierce hostility, I bind to me those holy powers. <laughs> That's so good! Oh man, look at that. Against the demon snares of sin. Against the demons, against the devils, against the forces of hell, against your temptations, against your vices, against your addictions, against the hostile people who would tear you away from the faith, even in this life and in this age. In every place, as far and wide as you can possibly imagine, against them, you have the power of the name of God. And there are two stanzas. That, uh, that the hymnal omits. One of them I understand, the other I don't. And here's the next one. Against all Satan's spells and wiles, against false words of heresy, against the knowledge that defiles, against the heart's idolatry, against the wizard's <coughs> evil craft. That's maybe not the best translation. The wizard's evil craft. It's not, you get the picture of like Gandalf up in a tower or something. Um, against the death wound and the burning, the choking wave, the poisoned shaft, protect me, Christ, till thy returning. Now, isn't that beautiful? Protect me, Christ, till thy returning. From all perils of this life, in body and in soul, protect me. And then the stanza that comes immediately after that, this is one of the really, really, really famous things of St. Patrick is this prayer. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. That's really great. Uh, it's not about you, folks. I cannot emphasize to you enough how much it is not about you. Who is it about? 
Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ everywhere. Why do you have Christ in every direction that you look and in every instance of your life? Because you bear the name. And you bind yourself unto the name as Christ bound himself to your sins, as Christ bound himself to death. You bind yourself to his life. Uh, and that being said, uh, I love this quote from St. John uh, Chrysostom from homily 46. Um, and, and the reason that I bring this up is, of course, soapbox. Where is it that you are joined to Christ if not more than at the Holy Eucharist? Where do you participate in the victory of Christ? In the Holy Eucharist. Where do you get the holiness that fills you, that creates the new man, that lays waste to the wasteland of your heart and raises up a new Eden within it? Who is the one that drowns the old Adam and raises up the new? It is Christ, it is him in his flesh, in his body, in his blood. And St. John Chrysostom has this, uh, has this quote from his homily. Wherefore, this also Christ has done to lead us to a closer friendship and to show his love for us. He has given to those who desire him not only to see him, but even to touch and to eat him and fix their teeth into his flesh and embrace him and satisfy all their love. Let us then return from that table like lions breathing fire, having become terrible to the devil, thinking on our head and on the love which he has shown for us. Against their fierce hostility, I bind to me these holy powers. Return from that altar, from that table of the Lord, like flaming lions. <laughs> oh boy, that's so cool. You're going to think of it differently. You're going to walk back there. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm a flaming lion. I'm terrible to the devil. Terrible to the devil. Because you bound yourself to Christ. Now, Let's look at the tomb. As you might imagine, this is definitely not a German tomb. <laughs> uh, because this is uh, St. Patrick's hymn. It has a, uh, a Celtic tomb. So here's how we're going to do this. Uh, stanza 2 is a little weird. And stanza two is where it goes on to the next page. So how this works is the first stanza just goes from top to bottom, three in one and one in three. And you even have little instructions, repeat after stanza one only. So you go all the way down there and then you go back. And then from stanza two until the end, it goes all the way through the second page. Because stanza one, remember, is short. So here's the tune. I'll sing it for you so you can hear it. And if you want me to sing it two times for you, I will do that too. No, because that's no fun. I don't want to sing alone. I want to sing with, with my dear children. That's the tune for the first stanza. It's got a nice, it's got a nice Irish feeling. And the dumb, short, long, short, long, short, long. That rhythm, if you start to feel that rhythm too, the text all matches in with the rhythm. I'll sing the tune for you again. Bum, bum, 
Now let's try to sing it with the words all together. Ready? I bind unto myself this day the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. So easy. You sound so good. We don't, you don't even need an organ. Listen to that. Okay, here's where it gets tricky for two reasons. One, because stanza two it's a great translation, but it's a little longer than the meter allows. So uh, you have to add some extra notes. I bind this day to me forever. By power of faith, Christ's incarnation. His baptism in the Jordan River. His cross of death for my salvation. So you have to add a little bit extra. Now, it goes on. There's a new tune. For my salvation. His bursting from the spiced tomb. His riding up the heavenly way. He's coming at the day of doom. I bind unto myself today. Now, if you're here and you say, hey, that sounds pretty similar to that first part, you're right because there's only one little bit that's different. Otherwise, it's all the same. When you start really getting down to the nitty-gritty, a lot of these hymns aren't actually so hard because they're the same thing over and over and over and over again. And this is a simplified version of the tune, too, because the Celtic version has all kinds of little, well, as you'd expect, little Celtic frills, you know, because you want to you wanna do your little dance to it. But, but we're German, so we... <laughs> uh, okay, so let's sting stanza two. Let me just make sure we're still in the right key. Okay, ready? I bind this day to me forever by power of faith, Christ's incarnation, his baptism in the Jordan River, his cross of death for my salvation. His bursting from the spiced tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of doom, his hand unto myself to. Jump down the line. Okay, and with the last couple minutes, we'll sing stanza five because that's exactly the same words and tune as stanza one, and then with the addition of the tune from stanza two. Uh, and you don't have to stand uh, just just because there's a triangle. <laughs> I bind unto myself the name. The strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three, of whom all nature has creation. Eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. 
Alright, next week as part of opening, and it is, we'll start opening by singing our, well, we'll have prayer, then we'll sing the hymn. We're just going to do stanza 1, 3, and 5. Um, but we're going to start getting the tune and the text to the point where we're familiar with it. We'll do it the whole month uh, so that we know this really well. And I guarantee you, once you start to get the tune, uh, you will never be able to get it out of your head. I've been singing this for two weeks. Uh, not by choice. <laughs> uh, okay, questions before we depart? One. Oh, well, hey, I would, have, I would have been okay with that. Yeah, I would have worn my kilt. <laughs> Any other questions or comments before we go? All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you at the high altar.